Good morning, everyone. Okay, we are back into our series on Revelation. I wanted to take the last two weeks and just kind of reframe our regathering around the two movements of the church. The church is called to regather together, and there's something special and powerful that God does in that context. And the church is also sent. We are the sent ones. We gather in order to receive from God a vision for how we move into the next week with purpose and power within his presence. And after doing that, I wanted to return to Revelation. We're in the middle of looking at a series of messages that Jesus gives to the churches in Asia Minor, somewhere around uh, the 90s, um, so about 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've looked at a few of those churches. Today, we're going to be looking at the fourth message, which is given to the church in Thyatira. Now, we're studying these messages because they are direct communications from Jesus to specific churches, so we can learn a lot from them. We learn what kind of expectations Jesus has for his people, and we can hear the warnings and the promises that Jesus shares with these uh, local gatherings of Christians so that... Um, in order to apply them to our context, right? Because while the messages weren't given directly to us, right? This message is given to the church in Thyatira. The messages are still for us. So we can apply them. We can say, what did Jesus want to say to the church in Thyatira? And how might that apply to us as the church in Nelson today? So let's move into it. It's chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, so right away, we'll see this pattern continue where Jesus begins his letter by um, highlighting a certain element of, of his character, who he is. And that is done symbolically through descriptors like eyes like a blazing fire, uh, feet like burnished bronze. And usually he does that. He, he highlights certain dimensions of his character and power to churches because there's some kind of a cultural or social connection point that is particularly meaningful to that church. So he's kind of building a bridge to say, um, you know, I want to speak directly into your context. And what I have to say is for you and, and uh, in a very uh, poignant and precise way. So when Jesus calls himself the son of God, we're used to calling Jesus the son of God. But that was a very loaded term for people who lived in Thyatira. Because at that time, there was a lot of cultic worship around the god Apollo, who is deified as the son of God. And <clears throat> around this time, there, there had already been a merging of kind of a divine, divine titles with Roman emperors, who in some uh, regions was referred to as the son of God or the son of the gods. And here in Thyatira, um, the emperor was sometimes identified as the god Apollo incarnate. And both were sons of Zeus, kind of the God. So um, 
when Jesus comes and says, this message comes from the Son of God, we need to hear that as the actual Son of God, like the true and better Son of God. The emperor is not the Son of God. This idol, which has a lot of social momentum and traction in Thyatira is not the Son of God. This is who the Son of God is, and Jesus reveals himself. Eyes like blazing fire really refer to the ability to cut through and see through um, all of the falsehood that might exist within our own hearts, within the church. Jesus sees down and through to the bottom. And feet like burnished bronze, these are descriptions that um, are part of John's initial part of the vision initially given to John in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. But remember, feet like burnished bronze is a throwback to a vision Daniel has of this coming one who's going to establish his kingdom. So to have feet like burnished bronzed is a symbolic or metaphorical way of saying it's it's someone who is going whose kingdom and whose authority and whose power is going to be not just strong but there's going to be a permanence to it the kingdoms of this world the nations of this world will rise and fall but the kingdoms of god's anointed one the christ the son of god is built on a firm foundation and it will last when all the kingdoms of the world have faded away so Jesus reveals himself. He provides an apocalypse to the church in Thyatira that um, is especially meaningful for them in the context where there was lots of competing messages about who Thyatiran should worship as the son of God. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And that first refers to when they started in their Christian journey and started in that journey together, when that church was founded. Jesus says, I can see your love and faith. I know it. And, you know, they have love, which leads to service. They have faith, which leads to perseverance, even when things are difficult. And he says, you're now doing more than you did at first. You were fruitful when you were established, you're even more fruitful now. So whereas the Ephesian church kind of cools off in some ways, Thyatira is building more and more momentum. They're burning brighter for Jesus year over year. That, that's, a, that's an amazing commendation from Jesus to them. And yet right away, Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, but her teaching, sorry, but by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of foods sacrificed to idols. Okay, so Jesus confronts this church directly. He says, in spite of your love and faith and service and perseverance, you have also tolerated, you've learned to tolerate something as a church that you shouldn't have. And the word that is translated from the Greek for tolerate, um, it means uh, some, some different kind of uh, w windows through which to understand it would be to dismiss something as not really important, to simply leave it alone, right? We've all had situations where 
someone's doing something that we don't like or agree with and it's like oh you know i can't be bothered it's not a I don't, I'm, I'm this isn't a war this isn't a battle i want to fight i just kind of let it go right it can also mean to forgive but again this idea of not a rich sense of forgiveness but just you know what i i'm just gonna let them run with that and not say anything it's it it conveys this idea of just allowing something to happen because it's just easier that way. It's not necessarily the right thing to do. It's just easier and it's expedient because it avoids conflict and you can just sort of get on with your life and turn a blind eye to it. So while there might be contexts where understandings of tolerance are a virtue, that's not how Jesus is using that word here. It's much more wedded to um, an inference of cowardice. That while they're growing in a lot of ways as a church, serving Jesus uh, fruitfully, they've also just allowed a kind of corruption and a poison to exist and to grow within their church. And I mean, in some ways, they've just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, what are you going to do? Like, we're all Christians, we're all family, like nothing's perfect. Let's just keep on keeping on. And Jesus is calling them out on that. He's saying tolerance can be a good thing when it's rooted in compassion and courage and, and empathy, but it can, it can also be very, very cowardly. And it can be sinful when within the church, there are things allowed to fester and grow, which God clearly condemns in his word. So when we refuse to do the right thing or to have hard conversations or to confront um, sinful, ongoing, unrepentant, sinful um, behaviors in the name of uh, tolerance, that is something that Jesus won't abide. And he just leans in right away to the church and wants them to know that. So what's being tolerated? Well, there is a woman, likely not literally named Jezebel. That's a, a pretty loaded title that invokes one of the great villains of the Old Testament who introduces uh, um, really uh, destructive idolatry into uh, Israel's uh, culture. And Jezebel kind of becomes synonymous with becomes a symbol of wickedness in the Old Testament. So by using that title, Jesus is trying to draw a parallel between what um, a woman is doing in the church of Thyatira and what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. This is a woman who calls herself a prophetess, right? So she's a self-appointed prophet, She, which means she claims to be able to speak for God in a way that is uh, likely, she would argue, more powerful and more authoritative than those who are simply trying to teach what um, teach um, the gospels and the apostolic teachings that come from uh, the apostles. And it says that she's misleading her servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And then, and then a few verses down, Jesus commends the church, those in the church who haven't gone along with her. And haven't um, sought out kind of the deep secrets of Satan. Um, one more thing, uh, one more note of context, and we can put all these pieces together and kind of begin to uh, circle in on exactly what is being tolerated. In Thyatira, um, 
there were a lot of merchants and craft guilds. Okay, so Thyatira's economic substructure relied on um, artisans and craftsmen and merchants being a part of trade guilds. Trade guilds. Um, what that meant very practically is those who participated in this aspect of public economic life would risk a substantial loss in their livelihood by refusing to join those trade guilds. Okay, you might say, then join the trade guild. Um, don't face any of those penalties. Okay, here's the problem. The trade guild meetings, however, were kind of a fusion of not just business meetings, but pagan and idolatrous meals, common meals, which were often characterized by not just gluttony, but drunkenness, and not just gluttony and drunkenness, but all kinds of sexual carousing and even orgies in some cases. And so Christians said, uh, I can't participate in this. I can't be a member of this guild if being a member of this guild commits me to even tacitly supporting this kind of behavior. This is idolatry. These are idolatrous rituals and practices, and I need to avoid them. And in this, you know, we have to understand about these trade guilds as well is that what part of it overlaps with them also are aspects of the imperial, imperial cult, where part of these meetings was an acknowledgement or some kind of symbolic sacrifice to the god emperor who occupied the Roman throne, Caesar. So there was another layer where Christian said, I, I can't show up to these things and participate. But not joining these guilds meant tremendous economic vulnerability and liability. So the Christians in Thyatira are in a bind. In order to have access to all the economic networks and opportunity, they're going to have to participate in these events that are centered around the worship of other uh, false supernatural powers or false gods in the case of Caesar. And these events, not necessarily always, but often led to drunkenness and all kinds of um, sexual immorality. So the Christians are really feeling the, 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 the pinch, the challenge of wanting to make a living, which is a good and godly thing, but feeling like they can't unless they compromise some of their deepest convictions regarding the Lordship of Jesus and honoring God with their body. So putting these pieces together, it's not too difficult to imagine how the messaging goes, why this Jezebel is able to establish herself within this church, to gain influence, and to um, rationalize, well, maybe I shouldn't say rationalize, to, yeah, just to gain influence within the church. Right? I mean, you put all these pieces together and you get a teacher who comes in probably very charismatic, maybe domineering, very brash, knows enough scripture to kind of pull some Bible-y sounding um, theological framework together. And it might have sounded something like this. Guys, 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 
We're overthinking this. God loves us, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're not under the law. We're under grace, right? It's by grace we're saved. And that means that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We know this. So we can go out and engage the world. We can sin boldly if need be at times because God's love and grace for us is greater than sin. God, I mean, surely God wants us to flourish and prosper. And the great thing about grace is that we don't have to worry about all the religious rules and regulations because again, God is love and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to be the first to affirm, she might have argued, that we can still love and serve Jesus and participate in these guild meetings and in these guilds. He understands this is just the way the modern world works. And guys, Jesus sees our hearts. So as long as you keep your hearts pure for him, then what you end up doing with your body is not that big a deal. And these are the kind of deep secrets that I know and that I teach that can help liberate us from this, um, from this impasse of, uh oh, you know, are we going to have to choose between serving Jesus or um, adopting and participating in these pagan sinful practices? You know, part of the secret that I want to share is that you don't, that's a false dichotomy. You don't have to choose, it's a both and. You can imagine now stepping out of um, that frame of reference and, and putting yourself in the shoes of a Thyatiran Christian. You can imagine how that message would be pretty seductive. It sounds biblical. It's referencing quite a few um, teachings that come from the apostles. It makes kind of sense. Yeah, grace is bigger than sin for sure. God's willing to forgive us. Absolutely. And the teaching is convincing enough that even if there are some within the church who haven't gone along with it, they've still tolerated it. Now, we don't know why they tolerated it. That would be interesting. I mean, we can guess, right? I mean, maybe they were compelled to be as inclusive as possible. And even if we had Christians and Christian teachers who were... Um, uh, teaching ideas that were really whacked out. Maybe they just thought, well, there's still a brother and sister in the Lord. So we want to do all we can to keep them part of this church. Cause there's not many of us and it's a difficult, harsh world out there. So we don't want to kind of shoot our own. Maybe her emphasis on grace is what made them question whether or not they could push back, right? Maybe, there were people early on who pushed back or who tried to um, bring correction to bear on her, but they were called out by her or her followers, what Jesus will later refer to in this message as her children, not meaning her literal biological children, but those who follow her, her like kind of sub-disciples. Maybe people did try to call them out, but they were scolded for being religious or law-based instead of grace-based. And that sort of cause them to shrink back. Maybe she was, again, a very charismatic, domineering presence, and her leadership simply intimidated the, the other leaders within that church. 
And so for whatever reason, um, she was kind of like a bull in a china shop. And I've seen this happen in churches with both men and women, obviously. There's people who are just big personalities. And some Christians just sort of defer to people who have the loudest voice in the room or who project anger or who say things matter-of-factly. Maybe that's what was going on here. Someone was just sort of being a big charismatic presence. And there was a significant minority of Christians in the church who were kind of like, yeah, I think, I think what she says, that, that makes sense to me. Maybe people were just afraid to split the church. They were realizing we've got a good thing going. We're growing in love and perseverance. We're doing more than we did at, at, at the start. There's a lot of good things happening in the church. We don't want to ruin that by making this issue bigger than it needs to be. So we're not going to adopt this practice fully as a church, but we'll kind of let these guys do their own thing because we don't want to split the church. We don't want to rock the boat. Um, we have enough problems trying to be faithful to Jesus when we are on mission in the world. <sighs> do we really want our gatherings, our times of ecclesia to be marked by division? Ugh, a lot of a lot of Christians don't have the stomach for that. So they're like, you know what? Let's just kind of let it go. Maybe this woman and her followers were very, very big givers because they obviously participated in the guild. So they had more access to the broader uh, business community. And so maybe it was just like it sometimes is in churches where people are like, you know what? We know this isn't the right thing or it's less than ideal, but this person or these people, they're really big givers. So we can't really do anything because if they left, what, like, what are we going to do? Our budget's going to take a huge hit. Are we going to be able to sustain ourselves? So there's kind of a, a deal with the devil made where it's like, yeah, we know this isn't right, but money talks, right? So those are, that's, all of those are just conjecture. We don't know. But what I want to draw your attention to is irrespective of the reason that fueled the church's tolerance, Jesus makes it clear there's no justification for it. That the Thyatiran church could have said, Jesus, we totally get it. We know this is wrong. But the reason why we tolerated it is this. And Jesus would have gone, Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Carry on. The force of this message is there is no justification for tolerating that which God has said from beginning to end in his revelation is wrong and sinful for his people, which is um, to engage in idolatrous uh, rituals and services and practices because we are owned by God alone. He's a jealous God. And to participate in sexual immorality, which is a word, porneia, from which we get porn pornography, which is a broad term, which essentially applies to any um, sexual engagement, any sex play that is outside of a committed covenantal relationship between man and woman. And when those two come together in... Um, uh, idolatrous pagan practices or temple worship it's kind of like a double whammy so it's like each on their own it's like don't tolerate them together it's like yeah no there's no justification 
Now, in verse 21, it's quite interesting. Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So this isn't Jesus calling out someone and about to confront someone, as we're going to see, because she's made a mistake. Or she innocently or naively was teaching something, just not understanding the full ramifications, not having maybe the biblical background to actually teach. She knew what she was doing. Jesus has given her time to repent, to turn around from her way of teaching, but she was unwilling, right? And again, this is where it's likely there's some economic interests in place. She realizes if I turn my back on this, then A, maybe people are going to question whether or not I'm a prophetess, that I speak for God in a unique and powerful way, and I'm going to lose a lot of my business contacts. And I don't want that, right? I, I, want, I want the best of both worlds. I want all that Jesus can give me, but I want all that the culture and the world around me offers as well. I don't want to have to choose. I want them both. So she hasn't been making a mistake, like a whoopsie, I just didn't understand. She's been willfully sinning. So in verse 22, Jesus says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Children there, again, um, um, is a reference to those who follow her, those who are patterned after her lifestyle. I will strike her children dead. Remember, he's talking to people in the church. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus says, I'm going to make her suffer for her actions. And regarding those who follow in her teaching, he says, unless they repent, I'm going to kill them dead. That's the direct translation. And the word dead there is the Greek word um, thanatos, from which the Avengers borrowed their great villain, uh, Thanos. And there's a purpose behind this judgment. Jesus says, I want all the churches to know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds of his people, and I'm going to repay each of you according to your deeds. That's pretty sobering. Jezebel wanted the churches likely to to believe that Jesus is the one who offers grace upon grace and forgives liberally and always loves and understands and never judges and never punishes, quick to forgive, abounding in mercy. Jesus says, those things are true, but there will be consequences for Christians, for followers of mine, who use those truths as a cover for willful sin who take advantage of my grace and mercy and forgiveness and instead live to please themselves instead of me. Now, this idea of giving according to one's deeds, this is a, this is a scriptural theme where God continually expresses in pretty clear terms this principle of judgment. In Jeremiah, God writes, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct. 
according to what his deeds deserve. This is picked up by Jesus uh, in Matthew 16, where he says, The Son of Man will reward each person according to what he has done. Paul picks up on this in Romans 2. God will give to each person according to what he has done. In Galatians 6, 7, maybe the most uh, famous uh, line that uh, un underscores this truth, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. And so Jesus is saying, when you willfully, intentionally use grace as a cover for sinful, self-serving lifestyles, that's going to come with a consequence. But notice he also, there's, there's a grace note, even in the context of this judgment, right? He says, unless they repent. So he's still holding up the prospect of mercy. And actually, if you just make a note of this, as we move through Revelation, we'll see that coming up again and again. Revelation is full of some very severe judgments, but there's always hope. There's the prospect of deliverance held out for those who repent. And repentance is a full, fully, full-bodied word that doesn't just mean feeling sorry for doing something wrong, but says, I'm going to change direction. I have contrition for the way that I've been living. I realize it's wrong, and now I'm going to turn and follow God's ways instead of my ways or this other religious patterns ways or this guru's ways. I'm going to now follow Jesus. And then to those within the church who have not gone along with this uh, Jezebel, Jesus says, Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold on to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's this promise that if those who have not been corrupted by Jezebel's teachings will continue on in faith and love and service and perseverance, and but no longer tolerate Jezebel and her children, there's a promise that they're going to be put in positions of authority when Jesus establishes a new heavens and a new earth. And then it says, I'm going to give them the morning star. And later in Revelation, the morning star we'll find out refers to. It's one of the titles that Jesus has for himself. There's going to be a special, I don't know if dispensation is the right word, but there's going to be a special intimacy that they're going to enjoy as a result of staying faithful to Jesus, even when it was at least economically, but economically and likely socially, and publicly very, very costly to align yourself with Jesus. And so in this context where compromise with really, really evil, immoral, destructive practices would have been very tempting to Christians, very beneficial to them in some ways. And so therefore the... Um, ethos was ripe for someone to come along and justify it, Jesus calls his men and women to faithful allegiance. No compromising, 
Just trust and obey. So after walking through that message, let's just sort of recap, because I've touched on a few of them, but let's recap some modern application for us. Again, this is a message given directly to the church in Thyatira, but it's also given for us. We can learn from it. Jesus can speak to us in and through this text by his spirit. So as a church, how do we apply this message as Christians today? A few things I'd want to um, highlight. Uh, the first is that there are consequences for you. If you are a Christian, but you are willfully sinning against God. Doesn't matter what the area is. Could be in the area of sexuality or body. Could be finances. Could be in your marriage. It could be how you do your work. But if you are willfully sinning, and what that means is you know what you're doing is wrong. The, you know the way you're doing it is wrong. It goes against what the New Testament says is called for by a believer. You're tolerating kind of immoral practices in a certain part of your life because, well, what are you going to do? Or this is just the way the world works. Or I can't not do it because I don't want to stick out like a religious fuddy-duddy at work or whatever. I just kind of go along with the flow. I think this message to Thyatira needs to, to pierce our hearts if we find ourselves in that situation. Jesus is merciful. He opens a window of time for us to realize and repent as his spirit prompts us through preaching, through the counsel of friends and our own, in the promptings that emerge in our own private time. But there are consequences for willfully sinning against Jesus. And, and they're not insignificant, right? Jesus is literally threatening, threatening people within his own church to strike them dead. Now, that is so divorced from many people's understanding of the character of Jesus. But we still need to hear that message and we need to let it sit with us. That Jesus will not abide ongoing willful sin within his church um, without some recompense, there will be consequences. And so if you're a Christian and you have been playing fast and loose with sin in a particular area of your life, maybe it's broadly speaking, porneia, it's sexual immorality, could be in how you're handling and using um, the gifts and talents that God has given you, could just be your posture and focus of your day where you basically don't uh, consider or think at all about how to honor and serve Jesus until you come back to church on Sunday and then you kind of just like ask for forgiveness and then just sort of feel like, well, okay, did, did my time in church and I get to go back and do what I want with my life. Doesn't matter what it is. If you are willfully sinning against Jesus, you need to repent before that consequence uh, falls upon you. Because this message makes it clear it, it will be coming. So we need to make keep short accounts with God. The second thing that I'd want to say is uh, it's a good message to consider and to ponder as it relates to who we're allowing to influence us in our lives as Christians. I mean, today you can go online and you can hear any manner of 
teacher and teaching. And it's become really, really challenging to discern um, who's using kind of scripturally sounding verses or, or scripture verses to kind of and packaging them in a, in a way that sounds scriptural and biblical, but are actually designed to draw us away from scripture. And that's hard to figure out sometimes. And I get that because there were times in my Christian journey where I would just listen to teachers and be like, wow, this, this person's amazing. So godly. They got their Bible open. They're quoting verses all the time. But as we grow in our faith, it's really important for us to have a few very trusted um, scriptural teachers to not just learn from, but this is why it's important to be part of a church under pastoral leadership that you trust so that when you hear things, you can say, I kind of, I've been exposed to this teaching. It kind of sounds good. What are your thoughts on it? Pastor Jeff, Pastor Rick, Pastor Matt, whatever the case may be. Because as a pastor, I don't know everything about the scriptures, about life, about how to perfectly live for Jesus. But I am committed to learning how to handle the word of God faithfully and effectively. Because there's a way that you can cut and paste these verses together and lead to very, very ungodly conclusions and applications. And I see this all the time. Christians being taken in by big, charismatic, attractive, magnetic speakers who are dynamic. And charisma can very often eclipse character and faithfulness to the text. And especially in an age where we foreground charismatic, dynamic leaders, we need to be extra careful. Those, it's not wrong to be charismatic. It's not wrong to be dynamic. It's a, it can be a huge leverage point for God's glory if you're a very magnetic personality. But we have to understand that from the very first generation of Christians, um, many Christians have been led astray by leaders who used the Christian faith to promote themselves. It still happens today, right? There's lots of people who would go around saying, you know what? I'm a prophet. I'm an apostle. I have a unique kind of authority to teach and they're charismatic. And even sometimes what they teach is actually, if you just extract this little part from their message, you're like, yeah, that's actually totally true. But the broader message, right? Think about Jezebel. Oh, grace and God forgives and God's merciful. All those things are true. But when it's all put together and the outplay is, therefore, we can compromise with the culture and society around us, even if that means participating in practices that um, the scripture clearly condemns. Wow, we don't, we don't have to be tethered to that level of legalism or religiosity. We can go beyond it right? There's people being seduced by messages like that all the time, even today. So it's really important to be praying and asking God to protect you from leaders who are wolves in sheep's clothing and are really about leveraging their own personality and charisma to get um, your attention and your money and your followership 
And it's not about actually shepherding you spiritually and pointing you towards Jesus. It's about liberating you from biblical Christianity and allowing them to show you a path and to make you subservient and a disciple of them instead of uh, the pastoral burden, which is to teach people how to become a disciple and follow Jesus. So those are two things that really stick out to me. Realize that there are consequences for willful sin as a Christian. We need to repent. We need to have a soft heart before God and be really, really careful who you're allowing to influence your ideas of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. And what does it mean to apply the gospel message that God has revealed himself in Jesus, died for our sins, and now has resurrected and given us a new life, a new freedom in him. Amen. But what is that supposed to look like? Be very careful who you allow to define the parameters of that expression. So as you are sent back into your spheres of influence this week, as you go as family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you follow the one whose eyes blaze like fire cutting through falsehood and whose feet are like burnished bronze. They are strong, permanent, and secure. And may you allow this Jesus to confront and challenge you in areas where you are willfully sinning. And may you grow in your ability to discern between Christian leaders who are genuinely striving to point you towards Jesus and greater faithfulness to him versus those who are simply trying to prop up their own image, their own reputation, and serve their own agenda. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week.